So the big question is this, how do investors like us get access to the ideas, information, and most importantly, the right people that give us the tools and information we need to make informed and educated decisions to have success? That is the question, and this podcast will give us the answers. This is Mark Moss, your host. Let's get this started. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Market Disruptors podcast. Today, I am sitting down with Philip Bonello. Previously with Ikigai Fund, he has been doing research into Bitcoin and crypto uh, for a number of years and has some amazing insights from all the research that he's done. And today we dig into a paper, a investment thesis that he's put together based off of the book, The Sovereign Individual. If you haven't read the book, I highly recommend it, but today we'll give you the cliff notes of it. But there's three points that the book makes and he makes into this investment thesis, which is well, I'm not going to spoil it for you. You're going to have to pay attention. But we get into some great talks. The book is amazing. It was written in 1997 when the internet was just in its early stages. And it's amazing how prophetic this book is and all the things that are coming coming to fruition today. It seems like the book was just re, uh, recently written. So anyway, it's a great conversation. You're going to learn a lot about what this technology is doing, the shift that's happening in the world, the behavior changes that are happening right now. And what the world, you know, the global macroeconomic picture of the world is doing right now to really push the adoption of this brand new technology. A great conversation, a great book. And let's just go ahead and just jump right into it. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Market Disruptors podcast. Today, I am joined by Philip Bonello. He is previously head of research over at Ikigai. He's been researching crypto assets and Bitcoin um, and has some really good insights. He's written a paper recently about a book on the sovereign individual and kind of an investment thesis around that, which was was amazing, kind of rocked the world. Everyone's been talking about it. And so I wanted to have him on to discuss that. I'm super excited. Welcome, Philip. Hey, thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so, um, you know, we've, we've, we've had the privilege to talk a little bit. I, I read your paper. Um, so lots of stuff to dig into. But before we do that, uh, maybe just kind of fill us in a little bit on, on what you've been working on and, and kind of where you're at right now. Yeah, so... Uh... Like you said, uh, I worked at Masari for a little bit, uh, then was head of research at Ikigai. Recently, I've just been taking some time off uh, exploring different kind of avenues. And one of the things that I've been digging into a bunch is just kind of a, a worldview. Uh, so as you mentioned, I recently published uh, kind of an investment thesis based on the book, The Sovereign Individual, which is uh, a really prescient book written in 1997. Uh, I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to say that I read it recently because it's such a uh, a lot of a lot of people in the bitcoin space really love the sovereign individual the book and uh, uh it, it really was an eye-opener for me yeah so the the last couple of years you've been doing research um tell us a little bit about the kind of research that you've been doing though yeah so uh in 2018 i really dug in and tried to understand uh why any of these crypto assets were valuable so what that kind of led me to is building out a series of different frameworks. So uh, essentially the way that I look at the entire crypto asset world is through the lens of productive assets and non-productive assets. So uh, you can think, think of non-productive assets as something like Bitcoin. Uh, by holding X, you don't get any, any Y. There's no exogenous cash flow, right? Um, similar to something like gold. Uh, and then in the productive asset category, if you hold X, you get why right there's an exogenous cash flow coming into the system uh something you know that's something like auger right where with auger you can you can stake rep 
and you're going to get a certain amount of uh, ETH in return to the proportion of rep that you stake. Uh, so that really led me to uh, build out a series of valuation models. It really helped frame my thinking for the entire space. Uh, and I kind of took that thinking and evaluated the broader ecosystem and um, kind of how value accrues in the, in the uh, whole system, in, in the crypto stack, I would say. So you really dug into these different assets and kind of uh, classified them into productive and non-productive. Um, but then were you also kind of looking at, uh, it sounds like you were also looking at maybe like the, ac the macroeconomic picture as well to see where do these new assets, where do they fit into the big picture of kind of where the world's at? Yeah, so a lot of what we did at Ikigai was think about the macro perspective, uh, given what's going on in the world right now, what is the, the demand for these crypto assets? Uh, you know, Bitcoin sits at a pretty, pretty interesting space in that uh, it's both a risk asset, but it's trying to be this reserve asset. I think the rest of crypto is pretty solidly in, in kind of the risk asset category. Um, and then, and then taking it a step deeper, it's okay, based on that macro perspective, what is the crypto macro looking like right now? And broadly, the crypto macro, a lot of time is influenced by Bitcoin. And so we use a lot of on-chain metrics to kind of study cycle um, and, and how we think uh, altcoins are going to react to the Bitcoin cycle and how Bitcoin is going to react and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then the final level is digging deeper into each one of the projects, analyzing the product that each one of them had, and then the asset that uh, each one of those had with relation to the product. Um, like I said, a lot of these are non-productive assets. And in our view, uh, there, there's not really a link between that non-productive asset uh, and, uh, I guess, you know, the product. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like looking at the macro view, especially when you're dealing with like technology like this, because it gives you, I, I kind of feel like the bigger picture is almost easier to see than the small picture. Like if someone says, Hey, uh, Mark, and I get asked this all the time, like, where's Bitcoin going to be in a week or in a month? And I'm like, I don't really know, but yeah. I kind of have a feeling of where it's going to be in five years from now. Mm -hmm. um, and I, and a lot of times I think mm -hmm. about it, like uh, you watch one of those movies where people go back in, you know, in a time machine, and if they touch one little thing and then they go back to the future, it makes this massive impact. And that's kind of like, we can see these little things happening today that have that massive impact. So that's pretty cool. Um, so thanks for giving us that background. I think it's uh, Im important to, to get your perspective as we move into this. But so, so you wrote this kind of investment thesis off this book, The Sovereign Individual, um, which as you said, is kind of big in the, in, the, in the Bitcoin space, maybe because it was foretelling of what was gonna happen, right? I mean, the book was written in 1997 in 1997, there wasn't really, I mean, the internet was around, but it wasn't even really, hadn't even really taken hold yet. So for them to write this book at that time was, was a pretty big, a pretty big deal. It was like, they, they did a good job. So kind of give us the overview of, of what, what the book's about and maybe your investment thesis you pulled out of it. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that's, that's really interesting about the book is that they do a pretty good job of predicting Bitcoin, you know, uh, they think that there's going to be a, a currency that's backed by gold. So they're a little off in that respect, but, uh, but still pretty incredible uh, insight. Uh, I mean, broadly what the, the sovereign individual talks about is uh, the, the logic of violence uh, and how that has really affected big trends throughout history. So uh, especially starting with kind of the agricultural movement, uh, with our with humans moved to agriculture, we started to have the emergence of personal property, and with the emergence of personal property, uh, violence at scale 
uh, really became valuable. So we, we saw the rise of these different types of uh, bureaucratic entities, these different kinds of organizations to really uh, uh, provide protection for groups of individuals who needed that protection, right? Um, and then as we move into the information age, a lot of that stuff gets turned on its head. Uh, so there's there's reduced information asymmetry. Uh, you know, there's uh, the the potential for a money that is outside of the control of a central government, and then encryption completely changes the, the the logic of violence and the way that individuals can protect themselves. So for the first time, really, um, an individual can hold, let's say, a billion dollars, and and they're they're the um, the way that they protect that billion dollars is just about as good as the way that the US government would protect that billion dollars, right? And encryption decreases the cost of uh, protection and decrease, it also decreases the leverage that violence has on, on people. Yeah, yeah, so let's, let's unpack that a little bit. So you talk about information technology. So the internet was information technology, right? So decentralized information. So previous to the internet, um, information you said had, uh, uh, eight, what'd you call it? Uh, asymmetric, uh, inform uh, I forget the word. Yeah. There, just but. there's in, um, information asymmetry, right? So asymmetry, certain, right. certain organizations have control over all this information and they distribute it only to their members. Right. You can think about, about it like that. Yeah. And so information was controlled and really you could chase this all the way back to, you know, Martin Luther times in, in Europe in whatever the 1400s where the church kind of controlled the, the scripture. And it wasn't until the printing press came out that then it was able to spread that information. And that's what broke the power that the church had over. And, uh, and the internet has taken that a, a step further, right? So we have kind of leveled the playing field on information. Yep. Yeah, that's exact. That's exactly right. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, and so, sorry, go ahead. Well, uh, I was going to say, so uh, because the information is now spread out and, and uh, across borders, across the globe, uh, you made the point, right? It, it's broken down the jurisdictional barriers. So now instead of like one country that kind of has all the information, now it's kind of starting to be global. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that's, um, that's one of the biggest drivers to this, this broader trend. Uh, everyone has access to the same information. So uh, everyone can be educated in relatively the same way. And when everyone can be educated in the same way, then everyone can do uh, mostly the same jobs, jobs that used to be considered skilled work, right? right. And so uh, when you think about kind of mean reversion, uh, the people who used to do that skilled work in the developed countries are, are used to these high wages, but now they're being undercut by people who can provide those, those same, uh, that same level of work for potentially a quarter of the quarter of the cost right and so it, it, it seems relatively inevitable inevitable that there's going to be this mean reversion from both the developed countries and the developing countries and so uh, I think that was that was one of the key insights that I took away from the book um, just this idea of decreasing information asymmetry uh, there's a decreasing value to location so the exit costs are are much easier. You know, let's let's say uh, my wages personally are, are going down. I can no longer afford to live in in LA, uh, so I have to go to a different jurisdiction, uh, a jurisdiction that might be more business friendly. Uh, they have lower taxes. Um, you know, they have subsidies for starting up entrepreneurial ventures. Um, 
and and it's and it's really easy to do that because I can run I can run my business from anywhere in the world. Right. Uh, where pre where previously you know you, uh, there's there's a lot of value in being in these central locations and we haven't quite seen that shift fully yet, but uh, you can see well, the beginnings of it. I mean, it's it's definitely not fully shifted, but we've definitely seen the beginnings of it. What's interesting is uh, at least I don't know I haven't fact checked it, but. A, a decade ago, maybe there's an author, Daniel Pink. He wrote a book called The Whole New Mind. Mm -hmm. And basically the point that he made in the book is that um, the whole world's been set up for technical roles. College teaches people technical, the SATs are technical. All the jobs were technical, right? Engineers, et cetera. But because of the internet, as you're saying, um, now it's taken technical roles and made them commodities. And yeah. so now being the engineer or whatever, the coder, the developer is not where you want to be because now that's been commoditized, right? I can hire a dozen of them over in New Delhi or whatever. And so he calls it a whole new mind because we kind of have a creative side and an analytical side of the brain supposedly. And he said, in order to be successful in this new age, you have to use the creative side of your brain. And instead of being like, uh, if you think of like an orchestra, instead of being the best trombone player, or the best horn player, you're the conductor. And I, I can't play the music better than any of those people, but I can make them make beautiful music together. Yep. And, and, and those people today have more leverage than ever before. Right. So, uh, there's creative people. Yeah. The creative people. Right. right. So, uh, essentially entrepreneurs and, uh, investors have more leverage than they ever had before because, uh, they can be really creative. They can coordinate all these resources while they're sitting in their living room. Right. Yeah. Um, on the flip side of that, workers have more competition than ever, than ever before. So, uh, yeah, you know, work work uh, work smart, not hard. You know, there may be something something to that. Yeah. Well, the school systems definitely have not kept up with the with the changes of technology, and so they're still training everyone to be technical, technical, technical. But we've gone to a creative world, <laughs> and so um, there's a there's a big challenge there, which we'll get into. I know you start talking a lot about education, and that's a part that I'm pretty passionate about. It's interesting though, you know, when you look at what's going on in the world today with, you know, all over the world right now, right? From Iran and Lebanon and Hong Kong, especially Hong Kong, but Chile and I mean, you name it, right? It's erupting. And uh, especially like in Hong Kong. Um, but I, it, as you called it, borderless information reduces jurisdictional barriers. And, and I find it like hard to believe that in this world today, a country can still own you. Yeah. Like you're owned, you're, you're basically a slave, right? You're owned by the country and ha in the US, right? Half of my wages go to the government. Yeah. And I can't leave. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's a huge problem. I think there are some uh, technical challenges to that, right? Our systems are set up in a way that we inherently give over our data uh, when, when we use a given application. Um, but like what you were talking about as far as uh, high taxation, it's going to be really interesting, interesting in the coming years uh, with uh, kind of the wealth tax, you know, the whole movement of tax the billionaires um, and potential for something like MMT, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, really wealthy people, especially, will probably be leading the charge of, okay, how do I protect my wealth here? Um, I might have to either protect it from seizure or have to protect it from inflation, right? And, uh, you know, Bitcoin's a pretty, a pretty interesting tool for that. 
if you look at how, um, you know, life has evolved, um, I mean, not since the beginning, but just, you know, you look at like Game of Thrones or whatever, right? And it's just like little tribes and they one would attack the other one to steal their resources. And so, you know, you kind of had to get these like kingdoms, which then became countries and still countries were taking over other countries to steal their resources. Uh, but now moving into like this more information age, which I guess we'll get to like in your encryption part, which is now we can protect our resources in a completely different way, which means the threats that we have are not the same as they always have. Like someone can't just come take over my house because my assets aren't, or my, you know, it's not in my house, right? It's like digital or whatever. Yeah. yeah and, and, you know, there, there are still levers to be pulled in the physical world. You can still be attacked uh, physically, you can still be killed. Right. Um, but more and more assets are outside of the purview of, of kind of govern, government interference, outside of uh, just physical uh, coercion. Uh, and and that, that's a really interesting trend. Yeah. Yeah. So um, while I see the information being uh, this kind of commercial or this borderless kind of jurisdictional thing dropping, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, I know you quoted um, Jill Carlson and she had talked about how the internet grew up and it, and it created this borderless, um, you know, mind share, information share, but financials got left behind. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me of a, a story I saw Eric Voorhees write a while ago where he kind of talked about, imagine if we had this internet and instead of this internet that connected the whole world and we all shared information, imagine if we each had our own little regional internet and we just had the United States internet and there was a China internet. Well, I guess there is a China internet, but you know, <laughs> each country had their own little internet and how different it would be. And then he made the point, well, okay, now that you've imagined that, well, that's exactly how money works. Mm-hmm. And so um, anyway, it's interesting to, to kind of look back and see how the information has been uh, decentralized and how, yeah, hopefully money's next there. Yeah, absolutely. Which takes us to the second point uh, of your paper, which was that, uh, or from the book, which is the creation of non-sovereign digital money. And yeah. I guess that kind of creates competition with the money which once we have competition with the money, then you said it decreases the power of inflation and taxation. Yeah. And, and so, so take, take a quick step back. You know, when I started thinking about uh, this thesis broadly, I, I looked at it through uh, kind of sources of demand and I, I use acquire, defend, bond, learn, and feel as kind of the, the sources there. And what and when, what are what are those? Those are those are like the the five human motivations. Yeah, and you know we can like it's up for debate what what are the primary human motivations. But I, uh, well, I we know borrowed, we know for sure greed and fear, right? Two at least. Yeah, yeah. You know, so acquire, defend. But right. I think there, you know, there's a there definitely is an inherent uh, desire to learn. There's a there's a desire to be loved. So that's sure. kind of the bonding. And I think there is a, des- a desire to feel or to, to escape, yeah. right, from, from your mind or uh, what have you. And so uh, four of those are borrowed from the book Driven, which, which uh, kind of talks about it in a different context. But I, the reason that I wanted to look at things uh, through the lens of demand is because I, I, I really like the way that uh, Jeff Bezos frames, uh, you know, he, he talked about people ask him all the time, uh, what's changed or what's going to change in 10 years. And he always says, well, it's a lot easier to look at what's not going to change. Right. And I think broadly you can look at uh, human motivations and how they're not going to change. Um, but 
what's interesting in, in the crypto space uh, is that I think there is a behavior change that that needs to happen, right? So we're very much focused on uh, this idea of acquire, uh, like greed right now, and to an extent have ignored uh, uh, kind of our defensive practices. We outsource, we outsource protection. And this is evident in, in the way that we use applications today, because all like Facebook has all of our data, Google has all of our data, right? Um, it's just the way that it's set up and people, people brought like pretty much don't care. Right. Um, so one of the trends that I see is, is as it, um, is that we'll see this, uh, this motivation of defend this need for defensive technologies to increase right and so so the the idea of digital money is is kind of a de defensive technology uh people don't really care about it until they have to you ask most people right now they say oh the us dollar is fine it's it's the us dollar right but I, I think there's all different levels to that, right? So I work with all types of investors and, and go through training stuff. And it's like in the beginning when you're young and you, have, and you don't have much money, you're just risky, right? You're greedy. I need to get more money. But as you get older and you have money, then it switches and now you have to protect that money. Or like you're young and single and you're thinking about yourself. Well, now I'm a father and I have kids and like you're, you better be sure I'm ready to protect that family, right? So I yeah. think uh, our motivations as humans are the same, but they change as we go through life maybe. Yeah, yeah, that that's definitely possible, and uh, it, I think it's probably environmentally dependent. Um, you know, some someone someone in Venezuela is definitely a lot more sensitive to the idea of inflation than someone in uh, sure. in the U.S. Um, and and I think I I think that those environmental factors definitely affect uh, the demands, uh, our motivations. Uh, so 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 that's kind of what I what I argue in the paper uh, that. We have this technology. We have the ability to opt out of these systems. We understand the supply, right? Uh, 21 million Bitcoin, that's a great narrative. But I think a lot of people are, uh, you know, they're, they're arguing about demand. Where's the demand gonna come from? And uh, as we see more capital controls, as we see increased inflation, as we see increased taxation, then the demand for uh, an asset like Bitcoin will increase and uh with that it's also the idea of kind of these self-sovereign technologies so right now bitcoin is firmly speculation right exchanges funds data providers brokerage services that's where all the investment is going there was this idea of decentralized exchanges um they haven't gained a whole lot of adoption uh but i think that's going to be they're going to be very important at some point at, at some point uh self-sovereign custody is going to be very important at some point like it, it the user experience for custody has to improve well i um, think you made the you made the point that those things emerge when there's a need and that's kind of capitalism at its best right so it's like um there is starting to be a need for having a non-sovereign digital money and yeah as you said right in the u.s people don't see that but in Venezuela or, you know, Lebanon or Iran, when the banks just open back up after whatever a month, like they have a need for that. Um, the decentralized exchanges, we haven't really seen a need for that. But once we see more increased, you know, regulatory crackdowns, there will be a need for it. And then, and then my hope anyway, is that we'll, we'll see that start to pop up again. Yeah. 
and and, and in some ways these <sighs> uh, fully decentralized systems uh, aren't necessarily the the way to go. You know, like you look at Bitmax, you look at Binance, you look at USDT. They they aren't wholly immutable or not censorship resistant or completely censorship resistant, you're still dependent on a third party, right? But they've been able to kind of skirt regulations and they've been extremely successful, you know, almost because of that. Yeah. But if we're sticking on the back to point number two, so we talked about point number one was the information reducing the jurisdictional barriers. Number two was creation of non-sovereign digital money. Um, and and I think you're talking about infl- the the you know sovereign individual, the information technology is helping to push that digital money, obviously because it's built off of the internet, um, and it's decreasing the power of inflation. So right now, governments around the world, including the United States, are are pushing inflation on us. Right, they're stealing the value of our money. So that is a reason that's causing this creation of this non-sovereign money, and yeah. and and, and, a, and a, I guess a competition for money, right? Definitely. And, and I think right now the, the logical conclusion there is, okay, well, I'm going to buy gold. Right. Um, but, but then um, you think about transporting gold, you think about uh, the ability for uh, someone to seize your gold. Uh, you think about the ability for, for you to store, let's say a couple billion dollars worth of gold, you know, talking about these really wealthy people. I think that's where the trend is probably going to start because yeah they see these problems, they'll see these problems before everybody else. Yeah. Um, and, and that's where we'll see the difference, right? The, in this, the, the reason for the censorship resistance and, um, for this and, and the supply. more, the more that governments inflate their money and seize people's money, the more they're going to be pushing people to options like this. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah. uh, it's kind of unstoppable. I think yeah. I guess we just have to ask ourselves the questions. Do we think governments will magically wake up and be fiscally responsible at some point <laughs> or will they continue to push it as far as they can push it? And again, going back to human motivation, I think we know the answer, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, these systems are set up in a way that uh, they want to get real people, the people in power want to get reelected. The easiest way for uh, them to get reelected is for their economies to do well. For their economies to do well, they should probably print more money so that <laughs> the equities markets continue to boom. Yeah. So then the third and final point was the encryption, that encryption reduces the cost of protection um, and decreases the leverage of a violent scale. And we, and we touched on that. Um, but I guess when you add all that together, I mean, it, the encryption you're saying is, is, is protection for us. And I guess with point number one about in, information, so we could have information that could be protected uh and and secret or private uh but then also then money we can create our money save our money and then encrypt it all i mean going to that point yeah and um so so yeah we we have the ability currently to send information around the world in in an instant but like you mentioned uh there there are um there is the ability to censor a lot of that a lot of that information right and so that's where this idea of kind of these crypto applications comes in. And, and Maya Zahavi kind of brought this idea of uh, dissident technology, right. which I think is, a, is, a, is an elegant way to describe uh, the value proposition of crypto more broadly. Right. Um, it's, it's, it's something, this whole movement is really to be able to exist outside of the purview of uh, government protection. Uh, it, it's kind of saying, 
we can protect ourselves now, let us. Um, and so, and, and encryption is, is, is a really interesting thing because uh, I, it, it makes it easier, it makes it easier for me to protect myself just as, and pretty much just as easily as a large corporation um, can protect themselves. Right. Uh, and then also when you think about a large corporation versus an individual, a large corporation is a honeypot, right? And if you're, if you're keeping your assets with that, with that organization, that corporation, their, their, uh, encryption probably isn't any you know better than encryption that you have available. Um, so, so you, you look at the reward for attacking that organization versus the reward for attacking the individual. And it, it, it tilts that, it tilts that scale. Yeah. And we see it happen all the time, right? Target and Experian and they're all getting hacked. The, the NSA was hacked. And when they hacked the NSA, they stole their hacking software, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Because they are those honeypots. And it's kind of like if, uh, if, if you would, uh, go rob a bank that had a billion dollars, or would you go rob a billion banks that had $1 each? Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's like that, uh, that, so you, but you talk about how like as individuals have more control of their property, then we have more need to defend that property, which I kind of made like, as I get more money or as I get a family and how we've been outsourcing that. And I think back to kind of like how, you know, the banking system started. So, you know, whatever the 1800s previous to the 1800s, I would just store my gold in the ground somewhere or whatever. Um, and then eventually I could just put it in a bank and then that bank would be, I'd be outsourcing the security right to that bank. Yeah. So maybe it's only been a couple hundred years we've been doing that. I mean, do you see that being this big behavior change you think that that's going to have to be made? Yeah. So I, I think, no, I think it's really, yeah, it's been since really the agricultural uh, revolution since the emergence of personal property that we've kind of had this uh, outsourcing of protection because I, you know, like the biggest guy in town, the most powerful guy in town, that's the person who, who uh, you can hire to protect your assets, right? And he gets some of his guys around and now he has this little army and uh, you pay you pay that leader to protect you, right? right. And that, that in, in, in different forms and fashions has kind of persisted. Um, and now with with the idea of this dissident technology, crypto broadly, uh, there are two there are two levers that people kind of think about. I think in in the crypto world, it's like cost efficiencies, and um, it's the idea that okay, there's no middleman anymore, and so now there's decreased rent seeking, and and I can buy that to a certain extent, right? Uh, some some of the costs will come down, but there there still is rent seeking. Uh, on, on the part of someone within the, or some people within the system, right? Yeah. Um, and the the efficiency isn't that it, it's not that great. What is a big kind of like a 10x improvement is the defensibility of these systems, and and that's where I think uh, that's where I think we need to see demand. And right now we're, we're everyone in crypto is like, why aren't people adopting any of these things? And I, I think it's it's just a demand issue, right? Um, there hasn't there hasn't been enough ruin to to demand these type of protective services. Um, yeah. Even though we have had the Equifax, you know, Equifax hack, Facebook, uh, uh, Yahoo, like all all of these big all of these big hacks and uh, um, these large data holders uh, really mishandling our our property, right? Um, and, and so we're going to have to see a shift of behavior from 
kind of this this uh, motivation of acquire to this motivation to defend your your digital assets as as we increasingly have more digital assets. Yeah. But when you talk about dissident tech, uh, maybe just unpack that. What, do, what are you talking about like that as kind of like a whole or maybe as like an asset? Yeah, I'm talking about uh, both like things that can uh, resist censorship and things that are uh, generally anti-fragile. So um, or, or, like and then that's like fight against the government or? To a certain extent that, you know, that's one of the, that's one of the use cases, but it's also um, like you think about like mesh networking uh, versus uh, some of the, um, our ISPs currently. Uh, these are central points of failure and they're easy, they're, uh, they're outdated in, in many respects and they're easy to take down. Um, whereas if, if you can create these, these networks that are uh, really res resilient and even better than resilient, they're anti-fragile as people try to attack them, you, you're making them stronger. Yeah. Uh, something, something really like, like Bitcoin. Uh, that's, that's kind of the Holy grail. And yeah. I think that's what we're, we're starting to work towards, but we're starting we're to see very, it. Yeah. Very early days. For, for those that don't know exactly what he was just talking about. So what we're seeing like in Iran right now is they took down the internet. Uh, the internet went down in Iran because they don't want them communicating or, or even in Hong Kong, they don't want the protesters communicating. And so they have mesh networks, which basically allow phones to communicate one by one and kind of create their own network um, that can't be taken down. And so, um, I mean, I think that, that this type of technology is in a direct response to that stuff that, that's happening. Um, you made a quote about um, the balance of the lion and the lamb. Uh -huh. And how if the, I think you said like if the lion got faster, they would eat, they would eat too many of the lambs. And if the lamb got stronger then the lions would starve and there needs to be this balance. Um, do you see like the lion being the state and the lambs being the, 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 the citizens? Yeah, basically. Um, essentially uh, nation states have benefited from being very strong militarily. Uh, they provided protective services. Uh, but now the equation is, has changed uh, drastically. Uh, more happens outside of the purview of the state. Uh, individuals can protect themselves. Uh, information isn't controlled as much by the state. And so uh, my, the way that I described it is that us lambs, the individuals, uh, have grown wings. You know, we can, we can kind of uh, avoid the lion. Avoid, avoid this predator. Uh, and, and it's, it's this, this idea that uh, nation states will continuously have to treat uh, citizens more like customers, right? And that, that wouldn't, wouldn't that be nice? Exactly. You know, wouldn't it be nice? And, and it, it, it should, that should be the way that things happen, right? Uh, we give so much money to these, these sovereigns but are, are they the best people to, to handle the money? Right. <laughs> and you start, to, you start to think about that. And, uh, it, it seems far fetched that, a that a nation would you know, treat you as a customer. But I think Singapore is a great example and Singapore is referenced frequently in, in the sovereign individual, which it was written in 1997. And now we can look at Singapore, you know, uh, 20 years later, and it's, it's pretty shocking, right? Singapore has been incredibly business friendly and, what has happened? A lot of businesses has moved to Singapore. 
it's interesting that we even have to say that, especially as both of us sit in the United States right now, because in the United States, it's supposed to be like a servant leader, right? Like it's supposed to be uh, the people there are supposed to be serving the, the people. It's a government uh, of the people for the people. Um, however, there's been a massive shift over the last probably decade or so where now I think the average person looks at the government as, as a ruling class, right? They're, they're not representing us anymore. They're doing as they want. And now for us to even have to talk about that, like they should treat us as a customer, like, no, they should look at us as their bosses. Yeah. Right? Uh, but anyway, that's not the case. Uh, but yeah, uh, maybe it's hard, it's hard to imagine, but maybe at some point where, um, with those three factors, as you said, right, with the with the widespread use of information, uh, breaking down the barriers, that we could move to the country that best suited our needs, and then they started competing for us. Yeah, exactly. With more happening outside of the purview of governments, the ability of individuals to protect their property through encryption, decreasing decreasing information asymmetry, and decreasing uh, the value of location, people can easily go to other places. And when, when people start to leave, then revenues start to decrease, right? Um, the, prob the problem is, is as you identified kind of like the five human motivations, one of those being greed, which seems to be uh, bigger and more powerful than the other ones, especially with certain individuals. And so you're always going to have these people that are going to want to control, right? So like, uh, you know, uh, we see it in the, the parent teacher association. I see it in my homeowners association. We see it, you know, at the presidential level. Um, so it's like one country says, Hey, come set up here. We're like, you know, business friendly, but then eventually someone's going to want to control that. Uh, do you think that that greed factor always is going to take over? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, but I think all of these things are just checks, right? And, uh, as a few businesses, as a few billionaires, you know, start to leave a jurisdiction that, uh, has high taxes and high inflation to, a jurisdiction which is more friendly towards these wealthy people and more friendly towards businesses, then then I think more countries start to take notice. You know, we're, I, both, I think we're, we're both in California, which is probably um, <laughs> at least the second worst state in the in the nation behind New York, if not the worst state for taxes and the way they treat businesses. And we've seen businesses leave the state in droves. Yeah, uh, the rich have left the state in droves. The rich have left New York in droves, and they're all headed to lower tax regions, no state tax regions, Texas, Florida, et cetera. But yet the states haven't decided to change if anything they've gotten they've doubled down on it yeah no so, I, I mean I, I, we'll see I, we I, don't know i think this is the trend but uh that i think timing is timing is the big question yeah now you made you made one point um that i want to just touch on where um i guess the first point was about inf information and now with the widespread information it allows us this arbitrage to live kind of wherever we want and you talked about how it's an especially interesting sector you made the comment um, because of the way that it gives people this, you know, a, ability to access information, um, which can really take hold and, and how you're expecting like the, the education industry to grow to 10 trillion, you said by 2030, um, and add a hundred teachers. Where, where did you kind of come up with that thesis, that thought? Yeah, these, these are estimates that I found in, in a, a fairly comprehensive report. I actually should probably link it in, in the, in the paper but um I, I think that education is really the the gating factor here because it it uh, it, it kind of allows the rest of it to to fall into place uh and when you think about education people can become educated really easily uh they have all the information at their fingertips 
Yeah. Uh, what is what is maybe a little bit more difficult is uh, the accreditation. And when when I think about the real value of universities right now, it's it's in accreditation, right? Oh, like you went to Stanford, you went to Harvard, you went to Yale. Uh, that 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 holds power right there, you know. And uh, um, but that power is being reduced. I made a video about this. Um, a lot of the big Fortune 500 companies have taken away the requirement to have a college degree now. Apple, AT and T, Marriott hotels—they've all taken away that requirement now. Yeah. Um, and so that's that again, right? Like the one little change in the drastic uh, difference it makes. And so by changing that, it takes away that, that accreditation piece. And so that's going to help usher in. I, I agree with that viewpoint. That's why I was just curious about that. I think that's probably the biggest shift that we'll see. Yeah. And, and I think that that opens up uh, an opportunity for someone to make a really good accreditation service, right? Uh, whatever it may be like, um, I think it was Eric Tornberg. He was talking about uh, uh, what is like the next LinkedIn, the next iteration of LinkedIn, because it, LinkedIn in a way is is providing these accreditation services and, and it's like an online resume. But can you take that a step further further or is, is it do you have an online portfolio or you know how, what does this tend to look like? Yeah. And, and there's a big opportunity to own that that point kind of. My, my thought on that is, uh, cause, uh, is, is that we're already seeing this shift, right? And, and, they, and they said, like, within the next two years, I think like 40% of jobs in the US are projected to be gig jobs. And so mm -hmm. what we're starting to see is like, I want to specialize in running Facebook ads. And I can work for five or six or 10 companies to run just Facebook ads. And I can be the best Facebook ads guy, or I can be a copywriter, or I can be a video editor. And I can just be a video editor. I can be a bookkeeper. And I don't have to be hired full-time at this company to be a bookkeeper. I'll just be a bookkeeper for 20 companies, right? Yeah. Um, and so it allows me to just learn how to do bookkeeping or learn how to do Facebook ads or learn how to do whatever. And I can watch YouTube videos for that, right? Um, yeah. And then I can just offer those services on a gig basis. And people think gig jobs are bad, but they don't necessarily have to be. Um, and maybe just that whole, because like as you, you already made the case that we agreed on is that like that, that uh, technical role is diminishing. Mm -hmm. And so um, maybe I don't need that college degree to go get that job at AT&T. I could just become a bookkeeper and work for 10 companies on the side and live in a jurisdiction that has cheap rates and I could live a very good life. Exactly. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I, uh, yeah, I think we'll, we'll continue to see more of that because uh, people are going to become more and more disgruntled in developed countries uh, because because they they expect high wages and they pay a lot in taxes. They pay a lot through inflation uh, and they pay a lot just for their property. Right. Yeah. Yeah, well, some good stuff we went through. Um, I, I want to just wrap it up with one last uh, point here, one question. And so you said that um, you think the tipping point will be in the next 10 years. Um, I guess based off of your thesis and what you're seeing, you think the tipping point when this really all kicks in is in 10 years? Yeah, and, and I think that that revolves uh, mostly around uh, – the idea of dissident technology and uh, uh, censorship resistant digital money. Um, it, it's pretty wild right now. It's, I mean, you, you read The Sovereign Individual. It sounds like it was written last week, right. to, to be honest, right? There are, uh, it, it talks a lot about the rise in uh, nationalism and like 
these neo-Luddites and um, uh, higher, higher inflation, uh, these trends of taxation. And it, it, it's, yeah. it's pretty wild to, uh, to, read, to read The Sovereign Individual today because it, it honestly was just so prescient. Um, so I, you know, the, the 10 years is kind of a guess, you know, it, it's, it's hard to time these things, right. But, uh, yeah, just based on how things are, how quickly things seem to be moving, um, in the press, in the press today. Yeah. It seems like just in the last six months, seeing the increase in rise or in the last year, the increase in rise in, uh, in, in demonstrations and protests and, and, and the need for this dissident tech, as you're talking about, seeing the mesh networks and facial recognition stuff uh, being pushed just in the last couple months in, in Iran and Hong Kong. It's almost like the governments are wanting to usher this in even faster. So um, I agree with you. Timing is almost impossible. Um, but at the rate we're going, maybe 10 years might be a long shot or a, a long time. We'll see. Yeah, definitely possible. I don't know. <laughs> Cool. Well, good stuff, Philip. I appreciate you taking the time to go through that. Um, like I said, it was a great book. Anyone that's listening, you should just go read the book on your own. There's a lot of good stuff. We can't sum it up in uh, 45 minutes here. <laughs> so, uh, Philip, I know you're, uh, I, I guess, where's, you're on Twitter. Obviously, you posted this on there. Is that the best place for people to keep up, keep up with you? Do you have a yeah, blog absolutely. or anything? Um, yeah, I have a sub stack that you can find on Twitter. I'd say Twitter's the easiest place to start, Phil J. Bonello. Um, yeah. Cool. And we'll link to that in the show notes for everybody. So Philip, anyway, uh, thanks for, thanks for joining today. Thanks a lot, Mark. It was fun. Hey, if you like this episode of the Market Disruptors podcast, please help us take this to the top of the podcast charts. Just please do me a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. Taking 15 seconds to just leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us reach more people and disrupt more markets. I really appreciate you listening and I'll see you next time on the Market Disruptors podcast.